Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. One of the terms that you'll see Lev Shestov bringing up occasionally throughout All Things Are Possible is groundlessness. And this is going to be an important way of characterizing the human condition running throughout his entire text and, and his larger work. You could say that grappling with this is one of the hallmarks of Shestov's entire approach. And he is an existentialist author drawing on other authors who earlier saw this problematic, for example, Nietzsche and Dostoevsky, who he talks about quite a bit in this work. And it's going to be tied together with a treatment of what we can call contingency. Now, he doesn't use that term all that often, but it is a useful philosophical term for describing another important aspect of our existence and the reality that we encounter, namely that things could be other than they they are, that it was not impossible that they be different. And therefore, in the future, we don't actually circumscribe all possibilities, even if we think that we do. The correlative of contingency would be necessity. When we say it's a sure thing, we're often engaging in a kind of projection or wishful thinking because as it turns out, so many things that we considered to be sure things, we find out aren't. And so the human condition, the way that Shestov portrays it, is that we live in a contingency that we discover progressively, and we don't even know how contingent things are. We might think of contingency as being something, instead of like an on-off switch, something like a continuum, right? Some things are more contingent, other things are less contingent. Some things are much more dependent on variables outside our control, some things are less so. And when we're talking about sort of ultimate reality, or the foundations of things. We want to think that there's some sort of necessity that we can grasp, but we don't actually have enough tools. We don't have enough experience. We don't have enough of anything to really justify that. And yet continually we are justifying a whole myriad of different perspectives that we say we finally got it. And it's very interesting if you if you think about when he's writing this in the early 1900s, right? The things that he's saying today, we have people in our new millennium saying exactly the same things, just a slightly different content. We finally figured it all out. I actually had a person comment on another Shestov discussion saying, modern science is almost at the end of figuring out exactly how the universe works and, you know, what the fundamental bases are. You know, we've heard that tune before. People have been saying that for a number of years, and we might actually be better off being like the Epicureans who we're going to talk about in just a moment and saying, here's the best we've got. And natural science is interesting, and it can be a great distraction. It can help us free ourselves from some prejudices, which would otherwise be bothering us. But Does it reveal to us the actual state of the universe? No. And even if it did, would that tell us what we need to know about the fundamental problems of human existence? Probably not. So we're always projecting beyond our experience. And Shestov is somebody who is writing in a post-Kantian time, also a post-Schopenhauer Nietzsche time. And he's going back in some respects to David Hume saying, you know, this old-fashioned skepticism by 
Shostov's time, that Hume was evincing might actually be kind of helpful for us. The realization that from the basis of our limited experience, we really can't conclude with absolute certainty or necessity all that much. And yet people are doing this all the time. Now, there's really two things that are going on in modernity that make for, you might say, a somewhat newer condition, something that Nietzsche and Dostoevsky, each of them in their turn, were totally attuned to, right? And that is that the development of, let's call it not just the sciences, but the disciplines help to reveal to us just how contingent things really are and how often we've been off base and how the sciences themselves often lack a grounding that they operate as if they had. At one point in the work, Shestov says, sciences really have nothing to do with truth. They have you know, to do with results, being able to put things into a certain classificatory scheme. And so through the development, this is something that Nietzsche says in the genealogy of morals and also in uh, the birth of tragedy, we become aware of the radical contingency, the groundlessness of all sorts of things. And we also could just be operating in, you know, our own ordinary world of, you might say, common sense and also come to realize that the things that we depend on don't really have foundations the way we think they do. They are contingent. What foundations they have is largely on the basis that we desire them to, to be so, or they work well for society seemingly, and everybody talks about them that way. But when you really poke and prod, you find that there's nothing supporting them. And there's all sorts of attempts that are made to either dispel or ignore or remedy this condition. This has been going on for, for quite some time. As a matter of fact, you can look back into antiquity and see similar responses, but it, it's intensified in our modern condition. So we have a few mentions that we should take a look at that flesh this, this notion out. The first one is in chapter 17 of part one. He's talking about Russian literature, and then he talks about Turgenev and this long article called Tropman's Execution. And he says the description produces a soul-shaking effect on the reader. I think I shall not exaggerate if I say this is one of the best, at least one of the most vigorous of Turgenev's writings. Tolstoy also describes similar things. And then he brings up one sort of example from this. The executioners, like spiders on a fly, threw themselves on Tropman and bore him to the ground. And then Turgenev says, the earth quietly swam away from under my feet. And he said, we're forced to believe him. This is an experience that we can actually have. It's a experience of what he calls the horrors of existence. He says, men respond only faintly to the horrors that take place around them, except at moments when the savage crying incongruity and ghastliness of our condition suddenly reveals itself vivid before our eyes and we are forced to know what we are. Then the ground slides away from under our feet. And, you know, does this mean that like the earth actually moves away from under us? No, of course not. But there is a feeling, a sensation, a affect of things slipping away. This is something that's a really major existentialist theme. We see this being discussed by writers as varied as, you know, as I mentioned, Dostoevsky and Nietzsche. Kierkegaard also talks about this sort of thing. 
Heidegger will talk about it in terms of the nothing, and Sartre will talk about it as well in terms of nausea, a term, by the way, that Nietzsche also uses to describe this, this realization of incongruities and horror and a lack of grounding, a lack of ultimate explanation, a lack of meaningfulness. This is something that's being experienced through watching the execution of another person, but it could happen in so many other ways. And so he goes on and he says, this doesn't happen for long. The horror of the sensation of groundlessness quickly brings man to himself. He must forget everything. He must only get his feet on the earth again. And this is quite interesting. What we have is a sort of a natural tendency to want to say, no, 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 everything is okay. I'm just going to find some explanation for this or, you know, have a faith that an explanation will be eventually provided. And he says that Turgenev in his diary of a superfluous man was proving himself in as risky a state as when, as a young man, he wrote this diary. And he says, the description of Tropman's execution ends with these words, who can fail to feel that the question of capital punishment is one of the most urgent immediate problems which humanity must settle. And why? Why does it have to be settled? Because it is confronting people with things, with, with horrors, with injustices, with something that says, this does not make sense. This is absurd. And there's no easy explanation for it. So, you know, that, that's kind of a good way to understand how this can appear to us. He also talks about groundless assumptions in a chapter that has that very title. This is quite interesting. He says, groundless assumptions based on nothing because they seem to derive from a common assumption of the reasonableness of human existence. This is something that, again, we're projecting our desires onto existence. An assumption which surely is the child of our desires and probably a bastard at that. Isn't that an interesting way to frame it, right? He's very good with turns of phrases like that. So it's a child of our desires. It's a product of our desires and an illegitimate one at that. So he talks about all sorts of, you know, examples of this in here. And, you know, how can we avoid making groundless assumptions? It's very difficult for us. It's very difficult not to buy into something. Even if we reject what society is providing us with, we have an entire batch of things within ourselves. He's got, you know, a great example here of the miser in uh, one of Gogol's stories, right? He says that Gogol with his Plyushkin creates a repulsive figure of a miser. He was nearer to reality. A miser is ugly, whatever view you take of him inward and outward. He's possessed by one desire to everything else, to all happenings. He's indifferent. It's the same to him whether he's hungry or full, warm or cold, clean or dirty. He's disinterestedly mean, we may say so. And the assumptions that the miser is making are just as groundless as the, we might say, fabric of nonsense that everybody else is pursuing, saying it's important to have a nice tie. It's important to have a good name. It's important to do this, to do that. And here's how you do it. Everybody's sort of making it up as they go along without realizing it. And very often in a crowd of people who are doing that. Now, if you, if you start to realize that, you could thematize this into something philosophical or cultural. And one of the great dangers of an awareness of groundlessness is what, now, Shestoff doesn't use the term nihilism, but it's something that certainly is in the air and you know could well describe what he's talking about as the cult of groundlessness. 
So there's a very interesting discussion a little bit later in the book in a long chapter, uh, number 14. And we're going to look at part of this and then go backwards into it. So he tells us that in the, the cultural situation that we've reached, we have come to a, to a point where now, at least for certain avant-garde elites who are, you know, sort of prefiguring where the rest of mankind is going, we are moving into seemingly a new era. He says, for thousands of years, man has sought to solve the great mystery of life through a God conception with theodicy and metaphysical theories as a result, both of which deny the possibility of a mystery. Theodicy has long ago wearied us. Theodicy is, you know, some sort of explanation on the basis of the nature of God or how God interacts with the universe. And you can do this in other ways. You don't necessarily have to have God. You can do it in terms of history or the party or American freedom or whatever you like, it all winds up being the same basic BS explanation and people don't really buy it. Why not? Because they've got good reasons not to buy it. You know, the logic doesn't actually hold up. He says that the mechanistic theories, which contend there's nothing special in life, these look more plausible at first sight, but people don't take to them. And no theory can survive men's reluctance to believe in it. People come up with all sorts of scientific, logical theories. You know, they're, they're as contingent and groundless as anything else. And, you know, the real test for that is people, after their initial enthusiasm for, in our time, for example, neuro-everything, you know, they're like, this doesn't really do what I wanted it to do. It doesn't provide a real explanation. And he says, so overwrought, mankind has turned from its old idols, and here's where the crucial turn goes, and enthroned madness and evil, right? He goes on and he says, this is solipsism and the cult of groundlessness. And, you know, if you look back at the stuff that he's talking about, like, for example, the decadence of the late 1800s and early 1900s, some of the stuff that they say is kind of quaint. But, I mean, if you spend a lot of time on the internet and look at the nihilism involved in certain movements that are going on, nihilism that's at the basis of their theories, if we want to call them that, where there's really a kind of groundlessness that people are terrified of. And then they're justifying all sorts of, you know, crazy stuff based on like evolutionary psychology, which is as shaky a science as you could possibly find in the, in the present, right? So many assumptions being made involved in that. Well, some people embrace it and they're like, I'm going to take the black pill. I'm, you know, I'm going to be nihilistic. So in his time, he calls this the cult of groundlessness. And he says, now here's where it's interesting. The cult of groundlessness and solipsism are not lasting. And most of all, they're not to be handed down. They're not sustainable, as we would say, right? And so they're sort of like a halfway house. Somebody goes into them and then they come right back out a little bit later into something else. They become just a straight out hedonist, right? Or they just become an abusive person working out their own traumas and cycles based on, once again, uh, some good mixture of groundless assumptions and mischaracterizations of things. Or they find some crusade to go on, whether it be on the left or the right, or, you know, they find a new religion or whatever it's going to be, right? And he goes on and he says, the final triumph rests with goodness and common sense. History has known many epochs like ours and gone through with them. Degeneration follows on the heels of immoderate curiosity and sweeps away all refined and exaggerated, well-informed individuals, right? So sooner or later, you wind up leaving this sort of thing, and even a culture can't sustain that for good. 
All the things that people have is these great boogeymen about our current situation and how it's against this and against that, you know, and the criticizing postmodernism or, you know, saying the Enlightenment was totally bad or any of these sorts of things. These really are not sustainable ideas over time. What makes them sustainable is people believe your BS and encourage you and coddle you and give you money, and then you can go on with that. But it's all groundless at the bottom, right? Even the, the sort of cult of groundlessness is groundless, and certain human dynamics will reassert themselves. Not that we can actually trust those 100% and see in those a kind of necessity. This is not a eternal recurrence conservatism on the part of Shestoff. He thinks that's just as much groundless silliness as, as anything else, but it is kind of good news, right? So the last thing that he says is very early in the work, and I think this gives us a clue about what he thinks we ought to be doing. He says that in spite of Epicurus and his exasperation, we're forced to admit anything whatsoever may result from anything whatsoever. But that doesn't mean that a stone ever turned into bread or that our visible universe was ever naturally formed from nebulous puffs. From our own minds and our own experience, we can deduce nothing that would serve as a ground for setting even the smallest limit to nature's own arbitrary behavior. So there is a kind of groundlessness to nature. There is a groundlessness within human nature and society. Anything can result from anything. It doesn't always work that way, obviously, but we can't set some absolute limits. He says, if whatever happens now had chance to happen differently, it would not, therefore, have seemed any the less natural to us. So, although there may be an element of inevitability in our human judgments concerning natural phenomena, we have never been able and probably never shall be able to separate the grain of inevitable from the chaff of accidental and casual truth. And we don't even know which is the most essential and important, the inevitable or the casual. We're, and we're probably never going to know this sort of thing, even if we do make progress in the sciences. As he points out later on in a discussion of science, he says, you know, the sciences, they make advances. They do so precisely by ignoring the vast majority of people's experiences. Right? They zero in on the ones that can be re reproduced and explained, and they ignore everything else. So what should we do? He says, we're forced to the conclusion that philosophy must give up her attempt at finding the veritatis aeterni, the eternal truths, the providing some sort of ground. We should recognize groundlessness and contingency. And then what should we do after that? Here's where he tells us that the business of philosophy is to teach man to live in uncertainty, man who is supremely afraid of uncertainty and who is forever hiding himself behind this or the, the other dogma. The business of philosophy is not to reassure people, but to upset them. And so the philosopher has, according to this, a task of living a life that can actually address the contingency of our existence and everything that we experience and the groundlessness of that whole existence and all the explanations that we try to provide to make sense of it, to figure out how to act within it. Doesn't mean that we can't have theories. Doesn't mean that we can't have even world philosophies, Weltanschauungen, right? A word that he uses to, to describe uh, philosophies as sort of a, like an overarching conception of the world. We can have a philosophy as a way of life. But we have to realize that we're doing so without any ultimate grounding. And so this is definitely sort of an existentialist moment in his works. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. 
You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.